Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm Natasha Mirosh. And I'm Sam Donsky. Between us, we've toured and tasted our way around more than 60 countries. Join us now as we meet the passionate people who make travelling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Sam, how much do you know about sake? Well, not much, actually. I know I've enjoyed it on trips to Japan, and of course I've had it at Japanese restaurants everywhere, and I know it's made from rice, but that's about it. Yeah, same. Although I did do a short sake education class a few years ago, which gave me a real appreciation of sake, but I'm keen to know more. Actually, I probably need to know how to pronounce it properly. How do you pronounce it, Sam? Sake. Sake. Okay. Yeah, but when I'm lazy, I'm just very Australian and say sake. Yeah, <laughs> so. Well, our next guest can definitely educate us, and she has a fascinating story of how sake captured her imagination and then changed her life's direction. Melissa Mills is a former dental surgeon turned sake educator and the owner of Sake Connect. Welcome, Melissa. I'm so happy to be talking to you and very much looking forward to learning more about sake. Hey, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, welcome, Melissa. Well, first off, how do you pronounce sake? Okay, I think you girls were doing really, really well there. So <laughs> sake, so kind of like okay, so sake rather than sake. Mm-hmm. So you, I think we're both on the ball. Oh, well, that's quite unusual for us both, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Melissa, I want to start by asking you about your love of Japan. How and when did that start? Yeah, I suppose I really came to want to go exploring outside my backyard. So I suppose I was part of that kind of big group of Australians exploring Asia that happened in the in the 2000s, right, when airfares became more accessible, if you like, and uh, that's kind of started my bug. I went to a conference and we decided to tag a trip on afterwards to Japan and uh, the rest is history. I just got the bug. And it was on one of these visits that an entirely new passion and a new career was born for you, right? Tell us about that moment? Well, I first started going to Japan in 2008 and kept going back and trying to spend, you know, my holiday, my downtime, like Easter and Christmas breaks there. And then somebody introduced me to Jane Lawson's book called uh, Zen Bu Zen. And then I found out by reading and following her that she was having a a tour, a food tour through Kyoto, which happened to be right smack at the time that I was going to be in Japan as well. So I thought, oh, let's see if I can get on that. And that actually was her very first tour in 2014. And I joined that tour with a great group of people. I think there was eight of us all together. And she had on that tour a visit to a sake brewery, which was the very first time I'd ever been to a sake brewery. So went into this brewery with her and we climbed up into the attic which is where the koji room was where they make this molded rice and the brewer gave me a handful of this koji to eat and I was like oh wow this is super interesting I was completely intrigued so yeah that was kind of a defining moment for me being in this brewery cold snowy winter's day kind of 14th century building up in the ceiling and tasting koji and trying to understand how I could put it all together. Sounds so romantic. Had you had an interest in wine or brewing before that? I suppose I was a great wine drinker but I came from a home where my dad brewed beer 
kind of as a home brewing project when we were kids. And then my grandparents always made wine. So there was a lot of home brewing going on. And, you know, I'm very much a child of the 60s. So I think people were quite inventive in exploring those sort of things in this early 60s and 70s. So yeah, that was my background. Loved wine, but that was about it, right? I had a fascination with going to restaurants and having wine pairings and, you know, letting sommeliers guide me and expose me to all these amazing things. And that's really who introduced me to sake in Japan mm. was, you know, trying trying to get into great restaurants or even just little, little izakayas, little bars, and people would just push you across a glass and say, try this. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I love this, but I don't understand it. <laughs> I mean, that was the problem. I knew I liked it, but I didn't really understand it. Well, well what did you do then when you um, came back to Australia after that wonderful experience? I think the first thing I did was like I need to know more about this and so I started looking for courses and at that stage which was 2015 I came across this course called the Wine Spirit Education Trust Sake course and I was super lucky because the very first course happened in Melbourne led and taught by an amazing woman called Yukino Ochiai who is a sake samurai and long-term teacher based in Sydney so I managed to get on the first course ever in Melbourne and that just put all the pieces together for me I suddenly realized ah it made total sense so I suppose for me education was a huge stepping stone and that course opened my eyes to so much Plus, you know, I had been learning Japanese off and on, but I went back to uni and did a full-time year of learning Japanese language. So that kind of helped me to read the bottles. <laughs> so, yeah, so I could now get into a sake shop in Japan and look at the shelves and go, oh, okay, I know what I'm dealing with now. So, yeah, that was great. I love the way you pursued that and fully immersed yourself in it, you know, mm. learning the language as well. Yeah, I think for me, language, I suppose sake is the marriage of all of my worlds all together, my travel world, my foodie world, my, my, my drinking world, and then the language and culture side. So for me, I suppose finding sake or coming to sake really put all those things together. So I was really, really lucky. And I think the education was just the icing on the cake. And that's really what I needed. And, you know, I was super lucky because my teacher was great. And I was very, really fortunate to um, receive an award from the WSET Global. They gave me a prize for the, for the highest academic score in my year when I studied. So that was huge for me because the prize was to go to Japan and be a judge in the international sake competition. So I joined this team of incredible people from around the world who were all involved in sake professionally. It was a huge eye-opener for me. And well, just in case listeners don't know, WSET is the Wine and Spirits Education Trust. It's what would you yeah. what would you call yeah. it? It's a certification board, I guess, for people in the yeah. It's a certification board which looks after wine qualifications as well as sake. So sake was introduced about. 15 years ago now but yeah so they've always been involved in teaching sommeliers or anybody who really who is interested from any walk of life quite yes yeah, certified courses that 
give you all the background and they step up in levels so you can learn more and more and more the deeper you want to delve down that rabbit hole. And they are great, well-supported, heaps of resources, and now internationally recognised around the world. So um, we've got courses in every country. So, yeah. I have actually come full circle and qualified as a teacher myself. So uh, that has enabled me to carry on and it's part of my business talking and educating people about sake. The combination of going to Japan and participating in the judging competition kind of spurred me on and inspired me to start my own business. So I started my own business called Sake Connect in 2018, which is to do with consulting for sake anything sake really. I do corporate and private events. And in lockdown, I started my own online shop so that I could deliver delicious sake to people in Melbourne. So that's been wonderful to keep me in contact with all those great sake fans out there. Mm. Oh, well, on that note, how big is the market for sake in Australia? I mean, when I was young, it was definitely just a novelty thing. And I I think my parents even had a bottle that sat in their bar unopened for (laughs) maybe decades. So (laughs) what's happening in the market in Australia? Oh, I think your parents are not alone. Um, (laughs) I think... There are many people who have got bottles of sake stashed in their back cupboard somewhere. But yeah, look, I'm I'm really thrilled and delighted to see the number of sake growers growing exponentially. And I mean, I think you guys might be surprised to know that Australia is in actually the top 10 of sake exports from Japan. So we are number eight in the world. And, you know, look, we're, yeah, we're behind some big countries. So we've got, you know, obviously the US being the major importer of sake in the world, but we're we're still part of that top 10, which is incredible. So year on year, our market's growing like 15% a year, or it was until COVID happened. And I think, you know, there's there's certainly going to have some uh, effect from that. But yeah, so excitingly, we actually had the crown of being one of the fastest growing sake markets in the world. And so suddenly people, you know, particularly Japanese producers and brewers were looking to Australia going, hey, hello down there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, oh, people really are interested in sake. And I think that really followed a bit of a Pan-Asian restaurant sort of food boom that we've had going on for the last, you know, five or six years. So we're uniquely positioned. We're on the Asian rim, if you like. So, you know, we're not that far from big sake centres of Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Vietnam, Thailand. You know, we, we, we follow on from that. And I think our beautiful multicultural population we've got a great desire to be exploring so yeah I think sake is it's still not huge but it's on the up and up and really exciting for us to see you know the future years look good I'm excited I'm excited too and I feel a little bit proud of Australia go Australia (laughs) Yeah, I think it's so it's so interesting that you know we're we our sake market is bigger than France and England and you know wow. <laughs> it's like it's 
It's incredible, really, when you think about, you know, how our head of population. Melissa, like Sam Sake, was a bit of a rarity for me in my 20s and my 30s. And like many people, I used to think of it as a liqueur something, a bit like grappa, I guess. But it's actually more closely related to beer than grappa, isn't it? You know, it's a common misconception that sake is super, super strong and is actually a spirit. And it's not. It is a fermented uh, drink and it has an alcohol content which is you know a little bit about 15 15 to 17 percent alcohol so sort of like a big Shiraz you know you're sitting in that same sort of territory as wine and I think people should actually approach it as that sort of wine um, style of drink in terms of how it's made it is as you say quite closely more closely related to beer but it has its own unique style of fermentation and i think that the, the fascinating thing about the way it's built is it's made from rice yeast and water and then we have this other kind of mystery ingredient called koji and koji is actually getting a lot of airplay these days but koji is uh, the way that we are able to get sugar from rice so koji is itself rice grains which have been steamed and then they have had a special mold um, growing on them and that allows the sugar inside or the starchy component of the rice to be accessed so then we have you know we've got our rice we've got our water Water, we've got our yeast and we've got the sugar coming from the koji, the enzymes there. It's a very kind of unusual and unique style of fermentation, but everything is put in a tank and these marvellous elements interact together and the yeast convert the starch from the rice into it's converted into alcohol through the step involving koji. Once koji is, is being made, we spread the mould on the koji rice and that takes about two or three days inside the Koji Muro, uh, a special cedar-lined room where this, this process uh, starts. And then the Koji is added into the fermentation tank, which has got steamed rice and water and the yeast in it. And so the tank is you know, where all the action happens. And we start off by a very small volume and we build it in stages up to a large volume. And the actual total fermentation time takes about a month for making sake so it's done in very very cold conditions so that the Japanese are all about controlling those steps very very carefully and monitoring flavor and taste as you go along and so it's a very controlled uh, very artisan process a lot of hands-on in many of the smaller sake breweries so it's kept there and then once it's finished it can either be stored in the tank or it can be bottled and stored in a bottle for around six months before it's released from the brewery and then we finally get to see it shipped over to us and appear in our in our retail shops or online or where at the restaurant wherever you are able to get your hands on some sake. Mm. Well the bottles then that that we see it in I've noticed that they have different names on them like Junmai. Yeah, so we have, we have, so sake has many different varieties, and there's a couple of main categories. One of them is junmai, which means pure rice. So, what that means is that the sake has been made with just those four ingredients yeast, water, steamed rice, and koji. There's been no extra add ins, no extra added alcohol, no preservatives, no amino acids, no sugar syrup, nothing is added in. It's completely pure in its fermentation. And so, that's 
one sort of sake called junmai, and then we can have what we call futsushu, which is ordinary everyday table sort of sake and then we can have non-junmai sake which is sake which has got um, a small and very a small addition of distilled alcohol added to it and that just really lightens the aromas and the flavors and it's done as a brewing it's a production choice so yeah so those are the main three types of sake that we see and Australians have really kind of fallen in love with junmai sake and I think that's kind of followed on from our fascination with natural wine and you know low intervention sort of wine styles so I think that junmai sake has really caught on in our population. And, and the percentages that I see on the bottles, I always thought that was the alcohol volume, but it's not that, is it? Yeah, right. There's two different things going on in terms of percentages on the bottle. As you say, one of them is just the alcohol percentage, but there's another number that appears and that, that may be like 50%, 60%, 70%. And that's what we call the rice polishing ratio and that is a percentage because sake has different styles related to the amount of rice polishing so this is like a really technical step but I think it's really important to talk about a little bit about that so rice when we have a rice grain uh, when we get a rice grain from the farmers it's you know brown rice it's got a brown husk on it and then if we take that brown husk off we've lost about 10% of the rice grain and then rice is actually composed of different things it's got fats carbohydrates and minerals and protein in it and the carbohydrate, which is the starchy component, is actually collected in the center of the rice grain. And carbohydrate is really what we need for alcohol fermentation. So what happens is that the brewers actually polish the grains of rice to take away the outer layers of protein and fat and get to that carbohydrate core. And that's called rice polishing. And so if we take away 40%, then we are left with 60%. So yeah, so different rice polishing ratios account for different styles of drink. So something that has had more polishing will be really lighter and fruitier and aromatic. And something which is not so highly polished will be more sort of earthy and and bolder and more umami focused in its taste. So you know how wine has different grape varieties. Well, in sake, we actually categorise our sake in terms of rice polishing. It's a fascinating area. Yes, no wonder sometimes people think sake is very, very high in alcohol if they just look (laughs) quickly at the bottle and go, oh, it's 60%. So does the percentage of rice grain polished away mean it's higher or, or lesser quality? So rice polishing is kind of a really slow process because we need to do it very, very slowly and gradually because when you polish or rub things together, as you can imagine, you get heat generated. So polishing a rice grain happens slowly. So to polish a rice grain to 40 or 50% of its original size takes two days. So you can imagine that the process actually adds, you know, time to and a lot of care needs to be taken so sakes that are made with highly polished rice i.e more than 50 percent taken away are really expensive because those steps create extra work extra expense so premium grade sakes or what are you know highly desirable or highly 
price sakes are those ones which are generally speaking um, more highly polished. So we've had a little bit of what we call the rice polishing wars going on in Japan, where we have gone for up to 1% polishing, which means 99% of the rice grain taken away. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, so if you can imagine that, we've got these tiny, tiny little flecks of rice which are going into the fermentation tank. So, yes, so rice polishing wars has been a real thing in Japan Hmm. in the last few years. But by and large, the majority of sakes are are polished to 50%, 60%, 70%. Melissa, what about terroir? Is that expressed in sake? Certainly I've tasted very different ones. Yeah, I know. I think that terroir is such a buzzword in the industry at the moment. And a lot of people have been talking about terroir as it relates to sake. And can I just say the court is out on this one. There has been so many interesting discussions about this because there's no doubt about it, as you say, regionality is very much an accepted concept in sake. There's different regions in Japan have different tasting sake. And that's because I think historically they have had different cuisines, different climates. So the food that they've developed has been different in different areas. And so the sake has been made to match the local food styles. And I think people 100% are in agreement with that. But it's a big step for, it seems, sake producers to go into this whole concept of terroir where water, microclimates, the growing of the rice, everything comes into play. But there is a small pocket and quite a vocal pocket of Japanese sake producers who really believe in the concept of terroir. So that's a really interesting area. We're going to have to watch that one. One of the brewers has even called his brewery Domain Senken because he believes in domainization and really believes in terroir. So, yeah, yes, there's definitely different areas in Japan with different sake styles. But by and large, like, for example, over at Niigata, the sakes are drier and leaner. And that really works well with their kind of more fat-based cuisine, which are quite rich. So the dry, lean styles of sake sort of cut through those bigger flavors in the food. And then we go up north to Akita, where things are really, really super cold. And the food... Our sake style is a lot kind of more luscious and rich and sweeter. And I'm a great fan of Akita style sake. Just love that sort of beautiful, refined fruitiness that they are able to to achieve in their ferments. So, yeah, so there's definitely regionality. I think by and large, most areas in Japan actually are producing sake. So there's 1,200 breweries and they're pretty well scattered over the all of Japan. I think there's one island down in Kagoshima that doesn't have a sake brewery, but most areas do. So we, you know, definitely sake brewing numbers are starting to reduce. We are now down to like 1,200 active breweries in Japan, which at the turn of the century was something like 5,000. So, you know, sake brewing is decreasing, but they're still, well, let's see what impact COVID has on all of that. Yeah. Melissa, I remember I remember sake being served hot many years ago, but on relatively recent trips to Japan, it was served to me cold. What, what's, what's the best way to drink it? Everybody will say to you it's a matter of per- personal preference that by and large, uh, if you want to have your sake hot, you can have your sake hot. But if you're coming at 
at it from a producer's point of view. Some styles, and particularly the ones which are more savoury and more umami-based, those styles work particularly well when they're heated. And those some sake brewers will make sake specifically to be heated and that's their you know that's their style of choice but generally speaking if something is really aromatic and it's really really fruity and and has beautiful aromas they may be fruity or floral aromas coming off it those sort of sakes don't work so well when they're heated and they're really designed to be be you know served cold chilled in a in a wine glass if you like so you can really capture those beautiful aromas so what I would say to most people is you know be guided by the smell and perhaps the taste of the sake if it's low in aroma and more savory and earthy and spicy generally speaking those sakes work really really well when they're warmed up and if it's really fruity and floral and light then those sort of sakes work beautifully if they're chilled. But, you know, ultimately I have seen so much experimentation and, you know, whatever you like, you know, if you you should do what you like. Mm. And I'm a great advocate for if you want to warm it, warm it. But I, I think there's more of a trend nowadays for chilled sake recently. And I noticed in Japan that they serve it in little wooden boxes and it's often kind of overflowing. What's that about? So the little wooden box is called a masu and, you know, they can be made of like cedar or, you know, hinoki or they could be a cypress. But generally speaking, you know, the little wooden box has some aroma. It's like a sort of fragrant wood. And historically, sake used to be stored in those wooden um, barrels and these were called taru. And when they cracked a barrel, they poured the barrel into those little wooden boxes. And then people were able to drink from those boxes and then take the boxes home as a sort of a souvenir. And so that's where this practice came from, where these little wooden boxes became related to sake culture and certainly to ceremonial stuff, celebrations, festivals. Whenever a wooden box, whenever a wooden barrel was cracked, the little boxes would come out. And they actually, those wooden boxes were used as a form of measuring. So for like measuring your rice quantity or maybe measuring miso if you were going into a shop to buy miso. And the actual box fits in 180 mils exactly. That sort of whole relationship with sake has translated into the izakaya scene very strongly in Japan. And you may end up going to a place where you get given the sake inside the box. And some bars will even put a little bit of salt on the edge of the box and encourage you to drink from the box and take a little lick of salt as well, which they believe really accentuates the flavor of the sake. And then the other practice there, which is where you put the glass inside the box and then you pour the sake and it overflows like a fountain. That's called mokiri mokiri sake. And it's really to demonstrate that whole emotanashi, that generosity, that whole joy of sake is the the overflowing fountain. So I can, look, when it first happened to me, I can remember my eyes popping out of my head because I thought, oh my God, this guy is having a problem. He's just keeps pouring and pouring and pouring. 
and I really think like it's like the ultimate trap for tourists. <laughs> They're like, what is going on here? So some some bars will have a saucer at the bottom, then they'll have the box on top and then the glass in the middle. So you pour into the middle and it overflows fountain-like right till it fills up the saucer at the bottom. And then mm. you have to work out how on earth you're going to drink it. <laughs> <laughs> So I love that whole thing. Like, you know, I'm going to be a crane. I'm going to put my head forward. I'm going to purse my lips and I'm going to drink from the glass first. (laughs) Then I have to like lift the glass out when it's safe and I'm not going to spill it all over myself because, you know, that would be the ultimate sin. (laughs) And then drink that, then pour the contents of the box into the glass and then pour the contents of the saucer into the box. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's quite quite a process and sounds like a lot of fun and it's going to trip us up a lot culturally I think Mm-mm-mm. but I love that um, idea of abundance and it's uh, such a uniquely Japanese sense of generosity and hospitality uh, when they pour it that way it's pretty special yeah I think too it's a very much a welcoming gesture so speaking back to Japan do any other countries make sake is the term protected like uh, say champagne Yeah, look, this is a a really important point, actually, because if you go in Japan and you go to a bar and you say, can I have some sake? They'll just look at you and go, so do you want whiskey or do you want vodka? (laughs) Because sake in actually Japanese language means alcohol. So this is a real, (laughs) yeah, so this is really important point. So if you want Outside of Japan, we're referring to that beautiful Japanese drink made from rice, fermented rice. But when you're in Japan, you actually have to ask for Nihon Shu. So Nihon obviously means Japan and Shu means alcoholic drink. So in Japan, sake has a protected name. It's called Nihon Shu. So if you go to a bar in Japan and you say, hey, can I have some Nihon Shu? They know exactly what to reach for. So that's kind of a really important point for most people because we obviously we're so used to using sake as a term that we don't understand that they don't understand what we want so yes so in japan uh it's actually a registered name so nihonshu means what we would call sake but outside of japan i think in our culture particularly in australia we refer to it as sake and actually your original question is is it made outside of japan and the answer to that is yes so craft sake brewing is becoming a quite a big thing and so in the u.s we've got more than well, around 20 craft sake breweries now and they're doing really really well we've had a like an explosion of beer brewers who have gone on and developed the skills to become craft sake brewers and then we've got du nouveau craft sake brewers as well and we've got a sake brewery down in new zealand which has been going for five years now that's based in queenstown and they're called zenkuro and we're seeing them pop up around europe france and asia in Australia, we've got one long-term brewery here called San Masamune, which has been, which is, you know, backed by a Japanese producer, and they've been now working for more than fifteen years here and here making sake in Australia using Australian rice as well. And then we've got a craft sake brewer maker in Sydney, Yuli's Brews, which is a vegan beer brewery. Also, have a beautiful Japanese woman making sake for them there. And rumour has it that we are going to have maybe a couple of craft, our own craft sake breweries within the next two years. Well, 
maybe one or two of them very, very soon to uh, open. So, yeah, that's super exciting. So I think, you know, making sake outside of Japan is now definitely a thing. And actually it has been really, really well supported by the Japanese sake brewers because I think they really believe that if people are making sake outside of their country, it also throws the light more and more on sake, which is really what they want to do. So, yeah, it's an interesting time. And, you know, I think that sake breweries outside of Japan feel less constrained by rules and regulations because let's remember brewing in Japan is, is highly regulated by the government. So, yeah, I think what we're seeing out here is pretty much inventive and exciting developments on the brewing scene. So, yeah, watch this space. So interesting. Melissa, talking about making sake, I've heard there's a bit of an interest in brewing it at home. That sounds a bit hardcore, but tell us more about how that works. Yeah, sake brewing at home, you know, I think it's just, it's so much fun. I actually began brewing myself in 2018. And for me, it was really trying to work out how that fermentation process worked. You know, I was learning about it and I was having to teach students about it. But I thought, oh, I really want to make sake so I can understand it better myself. So I started experimenting with home brewing. And then I worked out that actually it's, it's super, super easy to make sake on the kitchen bench. And actually, do you know, it's actually super easy to make uh, homebrew sake. And small scale is where it's at because as soon as you start trying to scale up, that's where things get more and more difficult. And so that's the big difference between commercial sake brewers and home brewers is that a lot of like craft sake brewers actually started off making home brew and then they got so excited about it that they just tried to scale up and that's the next step. I started actually a group during lockdown as sort of like an open source project called the Sake Brewing Collective and we, we've actually got a private um, little group on Facebook and if you anybody wants to join just you know find us and, and, and come on in and I just sort of started it thinking like oh I might get 20 people who want to make sake instead of making sourdough everybody was making sourdough at that stage <laughs> and I was like please come on let's brew so let's ferment some sake so what we did was uh we started off and I thought I'd get maybe 20 people and it ended up being hundreds and that group is still kind of growing um day by day but we we, we did a project brew in August of last year where we kind of all joined together and we were fermenting at the same time. And I had people from Taiwan and Malaysia and America and Europe, as well as a lot of people in Melbourne and lockdown who were fermenting on the kitchen bench. So we did a recipe, a starter that from the 14th century, actually, a very traditional recipe. And it was like super, super natural. It was completely wild fermented, natural, spontaneous yeast um, so it was amazing uh, it was hugely successful I think people really really enjoyed um, interacting with each other as well I had pictures of bubbling fermenting tanks on people's benches every day there would be something new so yeah that would that was a great experience and really it was all about showing people that it's a very natural process but once they've got a handle on it it's pretty easy to do so I think 
home brewing is you something you should try. <laughs> you know? I'm, I'm Can we interest you? Oh, to join the group. <laughs> definitely sure. going to we'll, try that. We'll put a link up when, yeah. when we. Yeah. yeah. I've just got one more question about the home brewing though. Does the rice come pre-polished? I mean, how that seems to be the trickiest bit of the process. I think that what majority of us were using was normal white rice because if you think about the white rice, it actually it has some white rice has been polished already up to 20%. So we were just using white rice. A couple of the people in the group had access to, you know, sake brewing, proper sake brewing friends and managed to buy some polished rice from their local sake brewers. But in Melbourne, that was more difficult. But we did have some help from a group of craft sake brewers who were able to provide us with some koji, which had been made on polished rice and imported from Japan. So that was super cool. So they kind of donated or sold this amazing koji to people to help them with their sake brewing, which was great. But yeah, by and large, we just use ordinary table rice. So as long as it's white, it's already had 10% at least already polished. And I actually did a whole batch using the rice that you use for boreo rice, that you use for paella. Because when I looked at it, I thought, oh my God, this has been polished quite a lot. I could actually see the carbohydrate heart in the middle of the rice. So I thought that was great. And and the result was fantastic. So we used, I generally use Japanese, you know, like sushi rice. But this particular time I did a batch using arborio rice. But I, I wanted to mention like one of the fun things that happens is at the end of the brew, we strain the sake through a cloth, like a muslin bag or, you know, a nut milk bag, one of those bags. And then you get left with, with the lees and we call those lees sake kasu. Kasu is the waste product of the sake. And then we actually created sourdough where we use that kasu as a starter for making bread. So we were making Japanese shokopan, which is the beautiful fluffy milk bread but we were using the sake kasu as the as the starter so we made we made cakes out of it we made pickles out of it we just so we kept this beautiful home fermented product going and going and going and people got really inventive so so cool so many good things yeah yeah yeah. well look natasha's very adventurous in the kitchen so i'd be very surprised if she isn't in that group i'm already planning she's I'm already going out to buy rice on the way home. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm not surprised. Now, sake, sake can be quite expensive when you just go out to buy it rather than make it. So, Melissa, what, what's the ultimate super premium sake and how much does it cost? Is there a, a sort of a grange or hill of grace of sakes? Yeah, absolutely. So sake, as you say, is a little bit expensive in Australia because of partly because of some of the taxation rules that come from imported sake. But, yeah, there's one sake called, it's called Ju Yondai, and Ju Yondai means Ju is 10, Yon is 4, and then Dai is generation, so 14th generation. Ju Yondai is a really quite a famous sake in Japan. It's made by a, a brewery located on a mountaintop in Yamagata, prefecture in this very remote area but it's much highly highly sought after and like bottles of that in Australia cost over $700 a bottle so 
<laughs> there's a real it's a very very niche uh product and yeah when we're getting up to 700 or over a thousand dollars a bottle for sake we are you know it's super super luxurious it's a super super luxe item have you tasted that yeah so I was we were really lucky like the the first time that I went to Japan to do sake judging the the competition was based in Yamagata prefecture and uh, we were hosted by the sake the local sake brewers of which Giondai's manufacturer is one of you know his producer is one of them so yeah I mean at the evening meals we were just drinking Giondai which was Oh, so nice. But yeah, I mean, I think I have been to a few restaurants and because some of my friends in Tokyo know that I'm a sake person, I think they, they like tell people and then these amazingly uh, uh, luxurious bottles of sake appear on my table and I'm like, oh my God. Very generous friends. Yeah. So I've been, I've been super lucky to be able to taste, to taste that sake. But yes, we are finding now that the luxury market for sake is starting to develop. So the prices are getting high. The brewers are striving to get that super unique, super luxe sake because there's definitely a market in some parts of the world for this sort of drink. But can I just say, you know, there's so much beautiful, delicious sake out there. You don't need to be spending that amount of money on one bottle. Uh, next time I come to Melbourne, can we go out to dinner together, please? <laughs> I want some of those those magic bottles to appear at my table. Thank you. <laughs> Talking about restaurants and food, Melissa, what are some good food matches with sake? This is a really important part about sake is that there's actually a, a saying in this sake industry and I think you'll agree with this is that sake doesn't fight with food sake goes alongside food really really well and I really want to hammer that point home is that sake matches pretty well with a lot of food because it does it has very very low acidity so it has 20% of the acidity of wine so from that point of view it makes it a lot easier to match with food compared to wine. It also has what we call umami, which is that fifth sense. So umami comes from amino acids as they're fermented. And of course, rice has protein. Protein is made of amino acids. And so when it's fermented, we get umami. So sake is unique. It has umami in it, which of course, wine talks about having umami, but really doesn't have umami as as you and I know it. So Sake fits really, really well. So particularly, I've really tried to differentiate for you the two categories, i.e. like fruity, floral, aromatic sakes are really beautiful with like lighter white meats and seafood. So our seafood culture and, you know, like slapping some calamari on the barbie or a few prawns and then having that alongside a beautiful ginjo or an aromatic sake is perfect. And yet, when we have those deeper, earthier, spicier sakes, then, you know, a beautiful braised dish, you know, a cassoulet, a really nice, or even a, a pizza. Pizza is great, you know. Pizza has cheese, which is loaded with umami. It has tomato paste loaded with umami again. And so having a sake alongside that is just 
wonderful matching. So yeah, that's what I, when I'm thinking about matching, those are the sort of things I think about. What is the sort of the main flavor driver in the sake? Is it big and bold and earthy and savory or is it light and bright and refined and fruity and aromatic? And that's where I will, you know, head with my sake pairing. But I also have quite a few bottles that I would just like able to fit with both cuisines, you know, just sit alongside really beautifully. If somebody is completely new to sake, what advice would you give them on what to try? And perhaps you could recommend a few for us. When you're a beginner, I think that most people in their life have come from a wine background. And so what I like to do is sort of say, I want you to be able to approach sake and start exploring. And a really, really good point to start is what I call a ginjo sake. So ginjo, which is G-I-N-J-O, and we pronounce it ginjo, so unlike ginjo, a ginjo. So a junmai ginjo or a ginjo is a really, really beautiful midpoint. So a ginjo is designed but to be really carefully fermented and it's got beautiful aromas, almost tropical notes, and it's got a really beautiful balanced body and a nice light, lightish palate, but, you know, and fruity, a little bit sweet, so not too dry. So that's the sort of midpoint. And I love, I always recommend people start with a ginjo because if they love that, they can then go up to the dai ginjo, which is a higher, more fruity, much more aromatic and silky smooth sort of sake. Or they can go down um, a step and head down into that junmai category with all those beautiful savory and umami notes. So I look for the word ginjo. And if you're looking at those numbers on the bottle, it's, the one that says 60% or 55% rice polishing rate, that's a really beautiful midpoint. So I'm that's where I say head there and then explore after that, after you've worked that out. And the other thing is we're starting to see more and more really beautiful sparkling sake coming in. And I think it's so good to be able to sit on the balcony at night and crack a little bottle of sparkling sake and have it alongside some beautiful seafood or alternatively, you know, you can have it with your cheese board, your cheese and fruit platter. It's just beautiful. So sparkling sake is one of those new categories that's just um, the last 15 years has really been developing in Japan. And it's really great for the Western market because who doesn't like bubbles? That sounds definitely worth trying. I'd love <laughs> to try that. Mm. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much, Melissa. You've been such a great guest and we've loved learning more about sake. Yes, thank you, Melissa. It's been so interesting. Mm. I really look forward to you joining the Sake Brewing Collective and want to see you down here in Melbourne and let's go and have some kampais together. Absolutely, and I'll show you my first home-brewed bottle soon. (laughs) (laughs) As usual, we'll put up some links and show notes on the website www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com and if you'd like to support us and keep us ad-free you can buy us a virtual coffee there as well. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and until next time, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. You can get more great food and travel inspiration including stories, recipes, reviews and more at our website extravirginfoodandtravel.com You can also follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook or email us at extravirginfoodandtravel at gmail.com. 
And if you like what we do, you can support us by buying us a virtual coffee at our website. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to download and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please give us a like.